God, may now the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Our scripture lesson this morning is from Luke chapter 20, beginning in verse 27 through 40. Please rise for the reading of the gospel. Some Sadducees, those who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and asked him a question. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife but no children, the man shall marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first married and died childless, and then the second. And the third married her, and so in the same way all seven died childless. Finally, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had married her. And Jesus said to them, Those who belong to this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of a place in that age and in that resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Indeed, they... I'm sorry... Indeed, they cannot die anymore because they are like angels and are children of God, being children of the resurrection. And the fact that the dead are raised, Moses himself showed in the story about the bush, where he speaks of the Lord as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is God, not of the dead, but of the living, for to him all of them are alive. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well for they no longer dared to ask him another question. I love, that's one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, that no one dared ask him another question. This is the word of God for the people of God. That's right, you can't, you can't outsmart Jesus is a general rule of thumb. Well, I was thinking about this week, this thing that happened to me several years ago, I was given a casual little mini-sermon for a casual Wednesday night gathering. And I thought things went well, and immediately after the service, as I'm greeting people and shaking hands, this man comes up to me and says, I want you to know that my blood was boiling the entire time you were up there. Take your darn hat off. Although he didn't say darn. And, uh, and me being me, I immediately began apologizing and I, and I tried to explain briefly that, uh, well, I, I had to come, get there on my motorcycle and I didn't want to offend anyone with my helmet hair, so I thought the hat would be okay. And before I could even finish, he's like, son, there's no excuses. This is God's house. Show some respect. Well, that, that, that happened. And uh, so a few weeks go by and I'm doing another devotion for the same Wednesday night group. And this same man approaches me after the service again. And this time he says, you know, how come you never say anything that I can actually relate to my world? I mean, I know that you're a young man and that you're inexperienced, but just so you know, you need to try to, to say something that I can actually, that relates to my world. Now, I'd had like six cups of coffee to prepare for this, so I wasn't my usual diplomatic self. And I shot back something like, just blurted out, well, where on earth did you get the idea I want to speak to your world? I want my sermon to rock your world, right? And anyway, it sounded very enthusiastic and bold coming out of my mouth, but it didn't go over well. And I tell you this story 
Well, not only to warn you in case any of you are thinking of criticizing my preaching, but also to note for you how in this little exchange, you got two people, and, and we're both asking questions of one another, but note how behind each question, there's an assumption. There's an assumed world, so to speak. In this case, it's regarding, you know, what is appropriate attire in church, or what, what is preaching, what is the, the purpose of a sermon. Behind every question that anybody asks, there's always an assumption that stands behind that question. From my limited experience as a teacher, I can tell you that one of, the, one of the difficult tasks of being a teacher is learning to ask the right questions on exams. I heard this story about a student taking an intro to astronomy course, and, and one of the questions on the final exam was, name three things that happen on Earth that never happen on the moon. And I'm sure the teacher was expecting to, was thinking about, you know, various chemical exchanges and physical properties and things like that. Well, this student wrote three things that happen on earth that never happen on the moon. Number one, Justin Bieber. Number two, roller skates. Number three, french fries. And he was right. I mean, but behind every question is an assumption. And so we should ask, you know, what are the appropriate questions to ask about the world? And what kind of world do we think we live in? And in Luke chapter 20, Jesus is examined by his critics. And they ask him some questions. Now, as critics, the Sadducees, you should know, they, they don't really want to have answers to their questions. They're mainly hoping to come up with a question so bizarre and so complex that, that no matter what answer Jesus gives, they're hoping he'll appear foolish. They're trying, to, they're trying to outsmart God, and it's not going well for him, which is why it's one of my favorite verses when it says, and no one dared ask him another question. There's something just so cool about that. Anyway, that's beside the point. But the Sadducees were different from the Pharisees, who I'm sure you've heard more about. The Sadducees were a, a party within Judaism in that day, and they did not believe in the resurrection. And, and that is why they are sad, you see. Oh, old pun. Well, they come to Jesus and they pose a question. They say, Jesus, in this so-called resurrection of the dead, let's say there's this woman and she's married to a man. But that man dies before they have any children and and so, according to the law given to us by Moses, that man's brother must now marry her. And, and so they do that, but then he dies and still no children. And so she marries the next brother, but then he dies and still no children. This goes on and on. Seven weddings, seven funerals, still no children to take care of her in her old age. So, okay, Jesus, here's the question. Who's, who, whose wife will she be? Because all the husbands had married her. If there were a resurrection of the dead, whose wife would she be? But you need to notice how in this discussion, this theological, biblical discussion these Sadducees are trying to have with Jesus, they, you, just can, you can almost imagine, like, say that woman is standing right there listening to this, and, and here's this woman who's had one of the saddest lives that anyone could imagine. I mean, seven weddings, seven funerals, and here these Sadducees are just so closed off in their own world, wanting to talk about Moses and the law. And furthermore, note the assumed world that stands behind the Sadducees' question. See, according to their worldview, what is the purpose of marriage? Why, it's to make the woman the property of her husband. I mean, they say that she's been the property of one husband, and then he died, and so she married another husband, and, but, and so that's transferred the property to his brother, but then he died, and that transferred property to his brother. So now tell us, Jesus, which husband will she rightly be property of after the resurrection? It's like these Sadducees, they, 
they're so stuck in their own world that they could have been talking about a piece of livestock and not a human being. No compassion in the whole conversation and they assume, well, she's a woman. She's got to be the property of, of some man. So tell us, Jesus, in this resurrection, whose property will she rightly be? And Jesus responds. He says, in this world, in this world you have these arrangements. Moses made these laws, made these marital arrangements in order to provide and protect for single women in a very harsh and patriarchal culture of the time. But Jesus says in the world to come, there won't be the same arrangements. And it's easy to almost miss this profound point being made here because what Jesus is declaring is that in this world, yes, you have a world of death and tragedy and injustice. In this world, you have it where people are forced into social arrangements and economic situations where many are forced to suffer. But in the world to come, and that's not a thing we think about very often. I don't think as often as we should. I knew an old retired seminary professor. He's asked, you know, now that he was living in assisted living, if he thinks about the hereafter and is looking forward, and he says, oh, I think about the hereafter all the time. Every time I walk from one room into the next, I stop and wonder what I'm here after. And I gotta say, in the three years that I was there, we didn't talk about it very much at all. And you think we would. You think that the Bible would actually say more about where we spend eternity and what that whole thing's gonna be, but it really doesn't. And, and there's, this, there's this implicit assumption when we focus only on this world, only on the here and now, that there is nothing else. And I think that that's, that's dangerous historically. Uh, one of my favorite historians uh, wrote that the 20th century, which is the most blood-soaked century the world has ever known, if you just count up the number of bodies, many of whom were murdered by their own government, he said the 20th century began not when the calendar rolled over to January 1st, 1900, but it began when someone first got the notion that this world, that this material world is all that there is and all that there can be. It was that assumption that paved the way for everything else that happened in the 20th century, namely the death camps of the Holocaust and the gulags of the Soviet Empire, the killing fields of Southeast Asia, the planned massive starvation of millions of people. You see, this, when this world for all of its limitations, when it became all that there is and all that there can be. People were freed from any worldview that required a, a belief in God, any kind of transcendence, anything that is beyond. And once they were freed from that, they were accountable to nothing and no one except for their own notions of progress. And these took on very dark visions. Things like racial purity and the overthrow of the bourgeoisie. And then in striving for this progress that they envisioned, peoples and governments, now I gotta say that Christians have a lot to be ashamed of in their history. And there have been violent acts committed in the name of Christ, but nothing, nothing like the 20th century where people and governments, freed from any transcendence, freed from any world except for this one, found themselves willing to kill on an absolutely massive scale. And with with an efficiency and an ease of conscience that had never before been seen in human history. And it all began with the notion that this material world, with all of its faults, that this is all that there is, that what you see is what you get. It's just this world. And I think it's important to note that this assumption is still very much alive and well in the 21st century. I mean, the majority of Americans say they believe in God, but yet 
have an uncanny ability to live as if there is no God. And, and I think that even us in the church, we've been conditioned to, to think in, according to this assumed worldview. Uh, we think that church is all about the here and the now, that the church is to help you get along in this world just the way it is, that the preacher's job is to speak to your world, as that grumpy man said to me one time. It's to help you improve yourself, to give you helpful hints for homemakers, you know, the way that you can get along in this world and make it work a little better to your advantage. But Jesus here in today's text, he marks the starkest contrast between this world and that which is to come. And you know, there's, I don't think we'll ever find a satisfactory answer for all the pain and suffering that we have in this world, but what you and I can do, our faith doesn't give us explanations, but it does give us resources, and what you and I can do by the words of Jesus is trust and look beyond this world and know that there is another another world. And we don't have to make the fatal assumption that just because there have been these social arrangements and there's been these economic and class distinctions that cause some people to suffer and some people to feel like they're not blessed, that they're not part of God's bounty, we don't need to assume that such things will always remain and surely won't remain in the world to come. Now at this point, some of you, if you're still awake and you're still listening, um, are probably kind of like that, that man, although a hopefully less grumpy, who cursed me for wearing a hat. You see, you notice I've been up here and I've been talking for a little while, and you might be wondering, where's the application? I mean, how does this relate to my world in the here and in the now? And yeah, that's a good question. And I guess there's nothing wrong with wanting some application in a sermon. But if you'll bear with me, I want to say something I think is very important, and that is that I don't think you come to church simply to learn a few helpful tips on how to get along in the world. Nor do I believe that you only come to church to see friends and neighbors. I think that one of the reasons you come to church, whether you're conscious of it or not, is to give you, when we're doing our best, just a glimpse of that world that is coming, of God getting God's will done here on earth as it is in heaven. Thy kingdom come. I mean, it's in music, it's in our communion service. The fact that we have a table, that we have a meal together. We are prefiguring and looking forward to that one day heavenly banquet. We're looking forward to the time when divisions will no longer be so. We're looking forward to the time when the lion will lie down with the lamb and enemies will be reconciled and the last enemy, death itself, will be no more. I think this explains why we have these uh, psychedelic windows. Um, you know, you... If you come in here today, it's pretty cloudy out, but if you ever come into this sanctuary on a really sunny day, it's just astounding, the light that comes in. And it's like the light is not even, it's not even from the sun that we know. It's like light coming from another world. And some people, some critics would say that, well, yeah, that's just you Christians. You come here to church, and the whole reason and the whole purpose behind church is for you to meet up with friends and for you to to see the world through rose-colored glasses because the world is too ugly and too drab and you need to come in here and pretend like it's something else. And well, okay, that's one explanation, although it's a terrible one. I think a better explanation of why we come here is that the world out there is not everything. It's not 
the world that God intended, nor is it at all the finished product of God's creativity. And so we gather here on a weekly basis to glimpse, to dare to look at that world that is coming. And hopefully when we're doing our job here, we get our imagination stoked and fueled and funded regarding the possibility of God at work, of God making all things new. Now some can call it escapism if they want to, but I know that you know, some of the most dedicated, hardest working people for the betterment of this world are not those who have just accepted it, that the world is all there is, but they're really those who, who sit on this world rather lightly, who know full well that this is not their permanent home. And so they can look at, at someone less fortunate than them and, and they, can, they don't say to them, well, you're, you should count yourself as lucky or anything, but no, instead they'll look upon someone who is homeless, they'll look upon someone who is in prison, or they'll look upon the people lining up here to, to our mission hope. And by their deeds and their prayers, in a sense, whisper to them, there's another world. And you help us to get a glimpse of that world. That's church at its best. And so church, therefore, becomes a serious and bold attempt to resist this lure of the status quo, this lie that modernity has placed upon us that would say, this is all that there is. This is as good as it gets. This is all you should expect out of life. Put a smile on your face. If you're suffering, put a smile on your face and just endure it because this is all that there is. But no, the church tells us something different. And it's not merely about learning to better face the world, nor is it about trying to escape from the grubby reality. Rather, since the church first began in Pentecost some 2,000 years ago, it's been about the coming kingdom. It's been about something that is already and yet not yet here. Now, I know a lot of you are busy people. Being a student, I know, is a very busy life. Being a student and being a parent and being a full-time worker is a very busy life. And, well, I mean, that's different from me because as you all know, I only work one day a week. But uh, some of you believe. <laughs> but a lot of you are going about and you're so busy and you're doing things that you should be doing and it's great and it's wonderful but it's so easy to get caught up in this idea that well this is just all there is and it's even easier now today because we have these things in our pockets and we have technology and algorithms that make it so that we all have our own world we all have our own echo chamber we have our own news no wonder we can't talk to each other anymore we're not even hardly speaking the same language and we're fractured and we're fractured and we're fractured and I believe that it is in this environment it's the reason why you come here and in the midst of all your busyness and all the actions that you're doing throughout the week, those other six days of the week, on all the things that divide and all the things that hinder communication and, and pull people apart, you come here to know that not only are you busy, but God is also busy. Maybe to get a glimpse that God is also on the move and thus, and thus we dare to pray something so bold as thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Here on earth, in our nation, in our community, and in our lives, as one day it shall be done forever in heaven. Amen. The Lord be with you. 
Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right and a good and joyful thing always and everywhere to give thanks to you, Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And so with your people on earth and all the company of heaven, we praise your name and join their unending hymn, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. Holy are you and blessed is your son, Jesus Christ. By the baptism of his suffering, death, and resurrection, you gave birth to your church, delivered us from slavery to sin and death, and made with us a new covenant by water and the Spirit. On the night in which he gave himself up for us, he took bread, gave thanks to you, broke the bread, and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body given for you. And likewise, he took the cup. And when he had passed it, he said to his disciples, this is my blood of the new covenant. It's poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so in remembrance of these, your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we offer ourselves in praise and thanksgiving as a holy and living sacrifice in union with Christ's offering for us as we proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and wine. Make them be for us the body and blood of Christ that we may be for the world the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. By your Spirit, make us one with Christ one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world until Christ comes in final victory and we feast at his heavenly banquet. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit in your holy church, all honor and glory is yours, Almighty Father, now and forever. Amen. Does assisting come forward, please? the blood of